Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny. This is the second part of my conversation with Sir Sam Mendes. And where we left him at the end of the first one was that he was 24. He was this wunderkind who had emerged onto the British theatre scene, the world theatre scene, seemingly fully formed, with two plays running at the same time in the West End, one of them The Cherry Orchard, starring Judy Dench. And at that moment, he goes to Berlin to see a production by the legendary German director Peter Stein of the same play, Cherry Orchard, by Anton Chekhov. And it's a revelation for him. He sees what theatre directing potentially could be. So even as this sort of young superstar, he is apprenticing himself to this great theatre master. And it seems like he has the world at his feet. And... This is where we pick up the conversation. So at that young age, you're having all this extraordinary success. You're seeing these mind and soul and heart expanding shows. Do you remember being happy? Was it a great time? It seems like it should have been. I think that you have to take a step back. I think anyone with that level of ambition, and I was extremely ambitious, and desire, hunger, for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing is running away as from something as much as they're running towards something. So clearly there was I would never had a still center. And there was never a sense that I was this appetite was going to be sated. I was a total workaholic. I was completely obsessed with whatever it was I was doing and going to do and going to do after that, all at the same time. And when I started running a theater, that added another thing into the mix, which in a way was another smoke screen. Allow me to say oh, I'm too busy, you know, to, to have any kind of a life, you know. And contentment, yes. Moments of absolute clarity about how much I loved what I did all the time. Really? Absolutely. I mean, I remember oh. a particular day when I was working in the RSC in Stratford, doing The Tempest. I walked into the rehearsal room, the Swan rehearsal room, looked out across the fields, and I thought, there is literally nowhere else I could possibly be or rather be than doing this play with these people in this room. So I, di- I used to have those feelings a lot. And I think that I'm not a regretter. I don't think, cool, I turned that down and that turned out to be a hit. It, 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 those things don't, you know, so that was fortunate. I was looking always forward. But coming to rest, a kind of happiness that eluded me, I think, probably for, for many, many years. But, you know, you have to ask, well, what is, what is that? You sure. know? But I definitely would say I, I was always slightly edgy when I wasn't working. Do you think it was the ephemeral nature of theatre too? Did that, did that add to it, this intense experience you have, this extraordinary creative life you're bringing to bear in the rehearsal room and then putting it on stage and then the director leaves? leaves. Mm. Well, I loved leaving, right? So <laughs> I, I found it difficult coming back. That's what I found hard. And I always used to admire and, and envy Deborah Warner, for example, who never leaves. No. You know, she, she watches pretty much every she performance. She gave me notes after the final performance of Medea. <laughs> after the final performance. When we had no more performances, we'd been doing it for years. This was backstage there you at Brooks Atkinson yeah, Theatre. Yeah. But, but there's I someone who's thought... absolutely in love with the process and with the endless discussion. I mean, for her, it would be irrelevant that there wasn't another performance. What's interesting is having the conversation. That's a great director. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Deborah's. But it's a it's not um, goal-oriented, is it? It's process-oriented, and that's, that's different. And I think we, in, in the UK and in, and in America too, it's a very goal-oriented landscape, theatre landscape. 
And so, yes, there was sort of, it was a feeling of sort of notches on the bedpost of, you know, theatre. You know, I was going to just, you know, this is, I was going to chalk up my first check off my show, my first Williams. And, but I was also discovering about those writers and learning about them and researching them. And, and I always did research them and work hard to try and find a way to unlock the plays that added to the dialogue and was not a step backwards or even sideways. Um, but I never felt myself to be in a kind of avant-garde, in the sort of vanguard of experimental theatre. And I always looked at people like Deborah and Simon McBurney and Declan as people who really were, and, and they really were pushing at the boundaries and they had a philosophy of theatre. And I always really admired and envied that period of the 60s and early 70s where British theatre somehow fell into camps about really passionate beliefs in how to do things. Bill Gaskell and John Dexter at the Royal Court felt they had the way that theatre should be done, which was, you know, you could argue heavily influenced by the Berlin Ensemble and by by Brecht and by the visits that the Berlin Ensemble made in the late 50s and early 60s. Then you had Peter Hall and Trevor Nunn and John Barton at the RSC, very text-based, all, you know, George Rylands. Um, It's all about first speaking and and there was a sort of there was a proper philosophy there and then you had uh, the sort of actor led theater of Olivier and and Chichester and the old Vic and then you had John Neville at Nottingham Playhouse and then you had Philip Prowse at the Citizens and then and then and then right so you've got all these extraordinary people and they all were like those other guys are shit this is how we should do it and I loved that yeah but I did not feel I was part of that that had changed so the 90s in in British theater was very influenced by the Thatcherite years. There was a real sense that you had to justify the theatre. The days of the mid-70s, you got a good big concrete palace on the South Bank and it's all funded by, by taxpayers' money, gone. There was none of that. It was like, how are you going to afford it? Mm. You know, well, you've got to be full. So there was always a sense of looking over your shoulder at, you know, you, the, the experimentation was not number one on the agenda. Number one on the agenda was staying alive. And that's what the Donmar was founded. That that was the little, the fire that that it was that forged the Donmar. You know, which for me was a, a kind of, and I said this before, a sort of pop art theatre. Hmm. You know, it was the the Warhol, you know, Campbell's soup of British theatre. It was the, you know, that there, there was a a sense that it needed to be brightly coloured. Hmm. It needed to be art, but it needed to have a kind of presence an instant presence in the landscape otherwise it was going to get it was going to sink because it was surrounded by some very very brilliant theaters being brilliantly run you know the royal court with stephen daldry jonathan and uh, kent and ian mcdermott at the almeida richard Eyre at the national you know they were all theaters being run at the absolute top of their game so i had to establish it very quickly and and that was something i i had to work purely on instinct and i was handed a couple of gifts you know, I was handed the new Stephen Sondheim, which was in a way a kind of piece of pop art. I mean, it's a, it's a it was the perfect definition of the space. It worked in the space, it fitted in the space, and it kind of announced a philosophy without trying to. Assassins. Assassins, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which was the UK premiere of Assassins. Yeah. So you run the Donmar for ten years. And by the way, I, I mean I remember it as an amazingly exciting time in British theatre, but also in Earlham Street. I just felt like you know, your theatre was, you know, for 10 years, it felt, even as the, though you say the landscape around it was incredibly rich at the time, it felt like the absolute centre. And I didn't think of it as garish in the way that I understand your sort of pop art analogy, because it felt much more making a virtue of, of necessity, that it had to be small scale, but also epic at the mm. same time, that you had to pare back on, on design budgets perforce because you're in a smaller space, even though some of the design was extremely interesting and inventive. Yes, it was always entertaining, but it also felt ex- exciting. Mm. It just mm. felt like an event. Mm. It felt like these things were not smoke and mirrors. They were not pop art. West End musicals. They they mm. didn't feel ephemeral in that way. But, they felt yeah. urgent. By the way, I don't I love Warhol. For me, there's no there's no sort of downside to it. It just needed to have a kind of vibrancy and colour and individuality. It sort of bespoke, you know, uh, each show was was handmade and, mm. and so I, I did I thought we did some wonderful things in those years. Sometimes you know, making a virtue of necessity, as you say. Sometimes we were driven to do them 
this is what we could afford to do. You know, I do remember thinking, you know, we can only afford a three-hander or a four-hander here. We can't go big many times. And we, we came pretty close to closure a couple of times. We had no public funding. Now you look at the Donmar and it's got a wonderful rehearsal room around the corner and office block and, and proper funding. And, it, you know, and it's, it's a fully-fledged theatre. But really, you have to remember in those days, it, it had absolutely nothing. Underneath, it was no safety net at all. It was just stood or fell on on its on any an individual show. And when we did uh, the new Michael Frayn play called Here, directed by Michael Blakemore, two heroes of mine, Frayn and Blakemore, partly because it was them and the play, you know, which I had my doubts about, but wouldn't voice them because I thought, who am I, you know, to? And it caught a big cold, you know. And we, I mean, I remember the first matinee. There were three people. Three people. Wow. Oh yeah. No, we were absolutely emptied by wow. the yeah. And we lost God, a lot of money. And we did a new Athol Fugard play called Playland that was pretty much empty as yes, well. With John that. the great John Carney. Yeah. So there were some hairy moments. Tell me how did the th- how did the Donmar come to be? It was a disused banana? The Donmar, of course, was already once upon a time it was a banana drying warehouse. That's okay. where they took the fruit from drying for Covent Garden Fruit Market. I was doing that production of The Cherry Orchard that we've spoken about, and it was the first night, and I hated first night. I still do. Can't watch them. I don't mind watching premieres at movies because the movie doesn't change show to show. I don't love it, but, you know, I'll sit through it. Plays is just too much pressure, particularly in the English way, which is the British way, which is all the fuckers turn up on the first night, all your mates and all the critics. So if it's a shit show... (laughs) There's no way back. It's an absolutely, it's a catastrophically bad idea to do things like that. And they much prefer how they do it in the US, which is to spread out the critics over the course of a week and then have on the opening night, you have friends and family and, you know, agents and people who have been involved in it. And then, you know, you go to the party and (laughs) hear whether, you know, the guillotine's coming down or not. But do you think you can't watch that because, because the sense of control is being seeded? It's now oh, no, up to I, them, or is it just too much of a pressure? No, I don't mind. No, no, I, I love the feeling that, that you, I handed over to the cast. I have no problems with that right. at all. I've always loved that moment around about the fourth or fifth preview when you just start letting it go right. and you feel like it, they've got it. You know, there's a real feeling that we've got it now. It's okay. Right. Don't worry about it. You know, uh, you, what you obviously don't want is a cast sort of saying, no, when you leave on the fifth preview. Don't, when are you coming back? Are you coming tomorrow? Can you stay? How about after the show tonight? You know, do, you do get a bit of that sometimes, but that's, that's not what you want. But um, no, it's just, I find it nerve wracking. I, I just, you know, you, right. and you watch the critics and, you know, i never forget the night before the opening night of um, the Cherry Orchard, we allowed a couple of critics in, one of whom was Milton Shulman of the Evening Standard. And Sheridan Moore, as Alan Bennett, Sheridan Morley. I always remember Alan, Alan Bennett saying Sheridan, Sheridan Morley. Morley. Sheridan Morley. Like, um, it sounds like some sort of affliction when it's said by Alan Bennett. <laughs> anyway, stand in the sun until you're Sheridan Morley's. <laughs> but but uh, and watching Milton Shulman fall into a deep slumber, no. five minutes, absolutely slept the entire first half <sighs> of the play. And then gave it a rave in the Evening Standard. <laughs> so that's how I learned. I thought, well, he's not going to like it, is he? And I've he never... This marvellous, gripping production of The Cherry Orchard by this young director. Yeah. I've never had a cosier nap in a theatre. <laughs> exactly. So, Five um, stars. Yeah. So I did what I... I now know that I get like that. So I generally arrange to be out for supper, come out the back of the Aldwych Theatre, and walk through Common Garden, do a loop... Uh, a nervous loop while the show was going on. And I walked through Covent Garden and there was the old warehouse, which is the RSC theatre, um, that was really brought to life by Howard Davis in, in the late 70s under scaffolding. And I thought, oh, I wonder what's happening to that wonderful old theatre. And uh, next day, you know, we, we, we emerged relatively unscathed with the reviews and I went to see Michael Codron, um, who was producing it. And uh, I said, what, what's happening to the old warehouse? And he said, oh, it's been bought by a chap called Roger Wingate, who owns uh, the Albury chain of theatres. And I said, does anyone do anything with it? He went, no. I said, well, okay, have you got his number? And, and Codra said, yeah, this is his number. Bring him if you want. Why don't you, why don't you ask him? So I called him and said, could I come and visit you? And a week later, I was in his office in Mayfair, above the Curzon Cinema in Mayfair. And I said to him, I should run that theatre. Uh, and you shouldn't, what are you doing with it? And he said, well, it was rather sort of, well, I, excuse me, you know, excuse, who are you again? And, uh, 
and it, well, we're turning it around. We're turning it. We think we thought a cabaret venue for the for, for the Perrier, you know, winners. And I said, no, 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 that's all wrong. You don't want to do that. You want to keep it in the in the th- on three sides, and you want to let me run it. He said, well. It- have you got any money? <laughs> had you seen inside it? At this no, point? no. I mean, I, I had seen it once when it was the warehouse, when it right. when the RSC, but it was oh, okay. a, it was the rehearsal room uh, for the RSC for a long time, and then they turned oh, okay. it into the small theatre. Yes, but it was originally found as a rehearsal room for by I assume Trevor Nunn and that that generation when the RSC was at the Aldwych. So it it was just I just sort of bulled my way in there. And I said, and, and, and everything we do that's any good, you can have it in the Albury theatres, you know, you, know, you can transfer it and you'll have it for free. And of course, that happened about twice in the 10 years. Right. But it was his kind of nous and his, he just was amused by this cocky little yeah. person coming in. But he hadn't really thought about what to do with it because he was worrying about his other eight theatres. And so it was just timing, really. Wow. I know. And then there was an extra, that extraordinary 10 years. And I want to talk about a lot of those individual productions, just, just little things you might remember about them. But before we do that, you know, this whole business of control is so interesting to me. And the way you've talked about that moment in Peter Stein, in Peter Stein's production of The Cherry Orchard, when you see the crack in the door and the light coming through and these things that are sort of, you know, formative moments for you, kind of visually, but obviously emotionally too. And how, this sort of, again, part of your central mythos is this idea of control and being able to manage anything. But there must have been times. Have there been times when you felt like plays weren't in your control? Well, it's a long time now, and there's a lot that have disappeared into the sort of mists of time. Sure. And I tend to not remember the ones that I haven't loved. So, of course... Really? Yeah, I te- they, they, they definitely go faster. It, that must be a great skill, because no, people would just, be haunted by it. I, I, I'm definitely not haunted by it. I was haunted by the bad things I did at university, plays <laughs> Um But you do learn a lot. I mean, for me, the play that eluded me because I didn't have the insight to do And by the way, I, the leading actor would disagree with me on this, but I did not feel I got close to King Lear. Huh. And I know, would like to do that again. Gosh. But I don't think I will. I th- I think I didn't Simon Russell Beale was and Simon Fields who I've worked with a lot obviously feels I'm wrong and that we did get close to it but I do not I mean it is a profoundly you know it's a mountain of a play and and, and uh, but I I just didn't find a way in I didn't find my way in I, I couldn't put it, my finger on it the crack of light through the door I, the, the doors the you... doors were closed you know I felt like I was directing it exactly as you say through through closed doors rather than... and you did it originally because you felt it was time Simon played it you felt like you'd seen him uh, in other things yes. that made made you and you of course you've now worked with him nine times I think Lehman was your ninth time together which won him the Tony Award very movingly and there was a sense that your relationship with him was reaching that point, even though, of course, he was very young to play mm. Lear, but he had that extraordinary vitality and this incredible range as a, an mm. actor. Well, I felt two things. I felt I'd seen him play Galileo, and in the last yeah. act of Galileo, he aged. I mean, the character aged, and he did it very brilliantly, and I thought, now's the moment when he's got the energy. Because whenever I'd seen a, a Lears who were actually close to, you know, three score years and ten, they didn't have the energy for right the center of the play the storm scene and what have you at least not on a big stage so yes it was it was because i felt an obligation to simon but i and i promised and we talked about it and i let him down many years earlier when i i said i was going to do hamlet with him and i didn't um for reasons i can't even remember now but he ended up doing it with someone else and it was a brilliant brilliant performance but but that would be an example of a play that i thought i had insight into and discovered i didn't then there are plays that I was wondering whether I would have any insights into and discovered I had more than I thought. Uh-huh. Uh, the Ferryman would be one of those. I think I did it because I was in awe of the play and, and I wanted that relationship with one of, if not the leading playwright of my generation. And I wanted, that was something I felt I I, I wanted, I'd never had. You know, I'd sort of yes. flitted from writer to writer. Yes. And I felt- Unusually for a major, major theatre director who've had, you know, I think of- Heitner's, you know, relationship with Alan Bennett or Richard O's with David Hare. Peter Hall's with Harold. Yeah, sure. You know, so that you, yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely do you know what, do you, Can you, can you, do you, do you have any a sense of why that is? It was a larger why, really. I felt that I was done with revivals and I was done with musicals on the whole. And I wanted only to work on new plays. And it, and it, it wasn't much more complicated than I wanted to be in an audience that didn't know the story. I got fed up of being in an audience who were 
both watching the play and comparing the play. I, I find the British tradition at a certain point quite exhausting mm. of like, oh, this is, you know, we've seen 17 Hamlets, you know, this is what's your one doing, you know, that's different from the others. And, and I think that that's valid, totally valid. I felt I wanted to break that cycle. I'd got to the point where I was repeating plays. I was doing The Tempest again, The Cherry Orchard again. And I, although I said, you know, in this interview, I would like to do The Cherry Orchard again, I, you know, I probably would think twice because I, I just love that feeling you have. And it comes also from movies of just an, the, the particular kind yeah. of attention that an audience has when they don't know the story. Fresh footprints yeah. in the snow. And they just haven't read it. They haven't no knowledge of They've got a vague clue. So I think it was that. There was a definite watershed moment when I stopped and I decided I needed to go fallow for a while. As someone who is lucky enough to have a meadow, I watch it get lopped down and taken away at least twice a year. And I think that you do have to, you know, lose everything and you need new growth rather than old. And I, and I, I felt like I needed that. I just felt jaded and a little bit, you know, what does... Hamlet called it stale and unprofitable. You know? Stale, flat, I thought, exactly. weary and unprofitable. There you go. Well, yeah, he's uh, Uncle Uncle Will says it better. So that that's what I felt. So it was definitely that. But then, you know, I loved doing those plays, those revivals. It felt to me like new plays sure. when I did them. Oh, you always made you know. them like new plays. That's that was one of your great gifts. Thank you. And the old, but I always felt make the familiar strange and the strange familiar. And and you know. Trevor Nunn's thing about you know treat new plays like Shakespeare and Shakespeare like a new play and I felt like that that was I was always trying to do some version of that and my highlights of the Donmar were I loved for example Glass Menagerie I, I thought I thought that was a that was a good piece of work and Company which we did with Adrian Lester I thought was good and the last two things I did there Varnia and Twelfth Night and then there were some eccentric sort of interim pieces like the Blue Room you know which was a cultural event undoubtedly because yes. it had Nicole Kidman briefly without clothes on although you, you you would have thought the way it was described in the press that she was fully naked for half an hour and it was probably two seconds and i'm not exaggerating it was I two seconds. Whereas, whereas ian glenn you probably have yes. erased this from it was fully naked for the entire scene he did a cartwheel he did a cartwheel he did a 360 <laughs> uh, in every he did he did a, he did as he said a double 360 <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember being on Broadway, like by the way. Wheel. Yeah, I being on Broadway with 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 the Blue Room and uh, Ian Glenn, who was an absolute trooper throughout the whole experience. In, in addition to, to being delightful to work with and really good in the play, we exited the stage door. And by the way, this was at the Court Theatre on Broadway. I think it's Forty Eighth Street. They shut down the block every night wow. because of the crowds outside this play. It was a two hander from the Donna, you know. And uh, as we exited the stage door, there was this. <gasps> Oh, like that. They saw it was me and Ian every night. We used to really enjoy it. We'd walk through untroubled, you know. Um, that was the, the, the heyday of the cruise Kidman bandwagon, yes, which was a pretty was noisy. It's hard to explain to people who weren't there at that time. They were the most famous people in the world. Yeah. They? It was like Burton and Taylor, and they were, it was just crazy. That was such an event, the Blue Room. Mm. And that you'd persuaded her to come do, which you later did, of course, also with Gwyneth Paltrow, to do proof mm. at, at the, the Don Mar too. The sense of making people comfortable enough. And she felt like she had sort of, she was sort of growing into herself as an actor. You could almost see it happening on stage, mm. I thought. Yeah, I agree. She, you really felt like there was a kind of confidence in herself that only doing a play mm. in this tiny little space in Covent Garden could give her extraordinary time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
So I want to talk about these individual plays, but I, I just want to ask you a couple of other things. So did you miss, have you missed the sense of a collaboration with a playwright? Is it something you felt was lacking or not really? I certainly envied it in others. And there were definite moments when I, I remember there's a, the 30 year anniversary of the Donmar coming up and they asked me to provide something for the souvenir program, you know, and they said, what were the ones that got away? And I said, well, and they were all new plays. I turned down My Night with Reg and all Kevin Elliott's mm. plays. I turned down Hysteria by Terry Johnson, which was both idiotic. I should have done both of those plays. And I really wish that Jez Butterworth had given Mojo to the Donmar and Patrick Marber had given Closer to the Donmar because for me, those were the two great plays, the great yeah. sort of killer plays of my generation You know, at that time when I was running the theatre. And I really remember being extremely envious that, that the National had Closer when I felt it was an absolute slam dunk Donmar play and needed to be all on its own and not in the rep at the National amongst other things. It did no damage to the Closer, of course. It was just me wanting the best for my theatre. But yeah, I definitely missed that and um, felt like the, there was a relationship with Patrick was the one that got away. I was going to direct Closer and then I ended up committing to, I suppose, my biggest flop actually at the Donmar, which was a musical called The Fix. Oh, yes. Which retrospectively I learned an enormous amount from, but at the time was really painful and walked away from Closer to do that musical. But the bit of me that wanted to do Closer was eventually assuaged by doing the Blue Room. So if I'd done Closer, I wouldn't have done the Blue Room or even suggested it to Nicole Kidman. So you can't ever sort of undo those things. You know, there, right. there was a strange, uh, you know, I, I sort of replaced what I wanted, which was really Patrick's play and Jez's play uh, with other things, and then managed to turn down all these other one plays in the process, most of which were done at the Royal Court brilliantly, you know, by yeah. Philip Lloyd and Roger Michel, uh, fabulous productions. And you learn very quickly. I mean, I've learned this in movies. You know, you get offered a script and there was one particular script that I was offered in movies and I thought, this is the best script I've ever read. I can't do it because I'm doing a play and I couldn't bring myself to watch the movie. And then I watched it and of course it was brilliant and I, I realized I, I couldn't have done it this well. Mm. And there's always a reason it finds it, you know, generally speaking, it will find its natural home. But do you like, have you liked being a lone wolf in that sort of creative sense? I mean, do you hope you... Carry on having this relationship with Jez, now you directed yes. the ferryman. Do you hope totally. you do, do plays together for the next however, however long you write? I would like to be his go-to person yeah. for all his plays. I mean, you never know if you have some weird artistic difference about you know whether a play is or isn't working. But I think that yes, I I'd, I've loved that, and um, I'd like I've loved the friendship with with Jez. I don't think it's a you have to do his plays in order yeah. to remain friends. But I feel I've I've got it now, and that's great. I did have, however, relationships with great writers yeah. on plays that weren't new. And so I, I think that fulfilled a lot of that hunger. Right. I had a great relationship with Sondheim. I did yeah. Assassins, and I did Company, and I did Gypsy on Broadway. I did a workshop of his new musical when it was called Wise Guys. You know, I had a great relationship with Harold. I had a great relationship with Brian Friel. Because I did, you know, multiples of their plays. I, I worked with Alan Bennett. I worked with Candor and Ebb, you know, for years on Cabaret. Yeah. You know, these were the sort of giants of of that era. You know, I had the fortune of working with Stoppard, you know, because he adapted our second, my second Cherry Orchard, but also because he had written the Real Thing, which was directed so brilliantly by David Laveau at the Don mm. So I, I felt like I had these relationships with these writers. So it didn't feel like I was cutting myself off from no, living no, no. writers. I just wasn't doing their brand new plays yeah, yeah, yeah. and it wasn't my priority because my priority, you know, I felt the Royal Court or the West End was the place for those plays and that we were better off with a bird in the hand knowing we were doing the, the work from those writers that was already established. And when we did The Real Thing, it felt like rediscovering a masterpiece. You know, it, it just felt like you couldn't believe how good a piece of writing it was. I mean, you know, of course now I know it's, it's been done several times since and the, but at that point, it hadn't really no. been revived. And in fact, one of the things I think is a legacy of the Donmar years is that we did do a lot of those plays and make them look like, wow, these are masterpieces. These are things that are going to sustain and going to be revived every 10, 20 years for the next, you know, however many <laughs> centuries. And I felt that about music theatre. I felt that about company and, you know, Sweeney Todd and Into the Woods, that Cabaret, that these were pieces that deserved to be held up alongside the Glass Menagerie or Streetcar Named Desire, you know, as 20th century classics. And I feel like that became partly the philosophy of the theatre. 
But I said when I started, I'm a big believer in retrospective policy, you know. <laughs> and they said, what's that? I said, well, I'll tell you when I've done it, you know what I mean, what the policy was. Because I was flying blind and sure. I said, look, well, you, you know, I know that I'm going to program this theatre as I think it's, you know, the, in the best way. But only five years' time, you may look back and say, okay, that's the sort of theatre it was. And I felt like it established itself over time. This business of being a lone wolf, though, is it lonely being everyone's dad? Yes. I, I think there are times when it's very lonely. I think, though, the worst kind of directors are those that look for validation and sympathy mm. and comfort and praise. I think you've just got to be grown up about it. You know, you've got so many people looking to you, depending on you, so much vulnerability, particularly in the theatre. Mm. Actors going out there every night, bearing their souls and struggling, and um, it's so exposing. I just think there's no real reason to be asking for that level of comfort or support. However, of course, you're a human being, and at times you just think, where's my comfort and support? <laughs> Want to be coming as a morning too. Turns out it's on the other side of this microphone. Here I am. My other wife. But but yes, I I mean, uh, but I also think I've I wasn't. I mean, listen, I'm you know, my life changed when I met my wife, Ali, and I don't think I ever shared all that vulnerability with anyone until really I met her. And I think that if you want to trace a line from when I met her through the work that I've been doing since which really is 1917, Empire of Light, Lehman Trilogy, and The Ferryman. You know, it's quite a different world than, than the one I was inhabiting 20 years ago. Yeah. But yes, I mean, it's, it's funny. You, you have this, you know, you vacillate between needing it and wanting it and feeling completely fine without it. But I've never been somebody who sought it in life anyway. So I, I, it wasn't that difficult. I was more solitary than lonely, but there were definitely moments of loneliness and, and, and strangeness too. I mean, I think particularly when I became a movie director and I was suddenly aware that I was really on a different level, of, a different profile suddenly. And I had people's you know, hopes and dreams in my, the palm of my hand and on many occasions when they were auditioning or they wanted a job that really would have, I knew, changed their life in that moment. Mm. That makes you feel very nervous of new friends, very suspicious of people who want you, who, who appear to want to be your mate. Yeah. And so you then, what happens is you then retreat and you become even more lonely, you know? So there was a whole period, I think when I was doing Road to Perdition after the success of American Beauty, when I had no girlfriend, I, I was very isolated. And I, I spent a long time in, in Chicago in the freezing cold, really alone, you know? The funny thing is about directing and about any kind of creative act is that that eventually finds its way into the work. Mm. And that lonely boy, that lonely young man is in Road to Perdition, you know, and you feel it in the frames, you feel it in the landscape, you feel it in the... And I sort of intuited that at the time, that that's what I was going through. And the man who was, the young man who was lost and trying to find his way through is in Jarhead, for example, a movie that is uncertain in tone and yet you know, searching for something and not finding it. So, so you, you know, you, you do see how, particularly retrospectively, you look back and you see how your work reflects yeah. who you were at the time that you didn't know while you were making it. You know, right. you, you know it was going to reflect you quite so clearly. The obvious one of those being Revolutionary Road. <laughs> I was just about to say. <laughs> you do the math. <laughs> not to mention the winter's tale. Um, you, you, you've had this extraordinary career in films. Why come back? To the theatre, it's so much shinier, and the train set is so much bigger and flashier. Why do you keep coming back? It's funny. You remind me of a, an interview I did just post American Beauty with a, I think the Time Out journalist at the time, who who was really just extremely pissed off that I was English and young and had gone and won an Academy Award, and could not have made it clearer how angry it made him <laughs> in that moment of being interviewed. And was like, well, you said, I suppose you're just going to piss off to Hollywood now, are you? And I went, no, actually, I'm going to come back and carry on running the Donmar. And he looked at me and he said, why? Yeah, well, that's yeah. why. Yeah. And there you have it, really. Okay, if you think you said ground fuck off, but if you want to stay, you're an idiot. <laughs> By the way, that is British people's attitude <laughs> to America yeah, yeah. in general. Exactly. As my children who have grown up in America are discovering going to a British school, they're basically like, we love you. And at the same time, we hate you. Exactly. Contemptible. Yeah. yeah. And at the same time, why are you here? 
Yeah. You just look over there. Why would you? Is it better? Isn't it better over there? Yeah. I'd want to go over there if I were you. No, of course. I mean, it's just that that's the the push pull. But why? Because I love it, and because it expresses a part of myself that cannot be expressed in movies. What part? Well, you are in a beautiful, peaceful, creative environment for storytelling, and you don't fly blind in the theatre. In the cinema, you are in a kind of weird trance state where you're trying to hold the entirety of the film in your brain whilst so it would be the equivalent of you're, you're making a huge mosaic fresco on a wall, but you're spending your day just working on these four tiny little tiles. And if I could just hold the whole fresco in my head, I might get these five tiles right. But I'm not sure whether this one should be gold or silver. You know, that's the feeling you have. So you exist with a kind of knot in your stomach and a sense that you talk about loneliness. Of course, the crew is a wonderful way, a kind of continuity of relationships. It's a wonderful way to make yourself feeling that you feel like you're not just sort of suspended above an abyss as a movie director, but you really are. You just are. Because if you blow a day, there's no way back. You, you just, you know, you're going to be lumbered with a bad scene and there's no way around it. Creating theatre is organic and it is a group activity and you're, the knot in your stomach disappears and you become a, a, your senses are much more awakened. You're much less driven by your frontal lobe and you are in a, an environment full of ideas, creativity, and the ability at the drop of a hat to see what, what's there. See, what, what have we got? Okay, it's only two weeks in. Let's just run what we got. Let's run the whole play. Just stand up with your scripts in your hand and do it. Let's hear the story again. Now everyone played different parts in the same story. What do we get there? Just the utter freedom mm. of exploring story from multiple perspectives rather than in movies the absolute rigid single perspective discovery, you know, ex- exploration of, of the film director. John Ford, you know, he just pointed at the cat, you know, one take. Well, you, can I do another take, Pappy? They say, well, you can do it, but I'm not going to run any film. You know, he just wanted that. Do that? Good, thank you. We're moving on. Hitchcock, the same. I mean, I'm not saying that's what all the film directing is. And, and you know, I hope I utilize many of the skills or the relationship the way i i allow relationships to grow in in the process of doing a film but it is fundamentally hierarchical it's it's a profoundly inorganic and rigid process and theater is not so when i leave that rigid process uh longing for freedom longing for the organic i mean it's a terrible word but you know what i mean Mm. i i it's like a warm bath but at the end of theater i long again for complete control because Never is it quite, quite what you hoped. Never. But then that's true of movies as well, but for a different set of reasons. Because the director doesn't own the medium, do you think, in the same way that they do on film? Because it's very difficult to perfect anything on stage. It's it's too full of human error. And you know, and and it's the wrong reason to it's the wrong question to ask. Yeah, you don't yeah. go into the theatre to make a perfect sure. experience. You go into it embracing, as I said right at the beginning of this conversation the chaos of life you know human beings sweating and spitting and 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 pissing on apples and, and pissing on apples and making okay. mistakes and shitting all over the stage and that's just simon russell beale so you know <laughs> he is getting on a bit now <laughs> but you know what i mean so that's <laughs> but that <laughs> that's that's what you you know and you you want it so i'm very fortunate that you get to go i get to go back and forth between this extreme control yeah. and this allowance of humanity and and uh you know what you hopefully learn is you bring some of that humanity some of that roughness some of that looseness some of that lack of fear of failure and of chaos into movies and you bring some of that control for example 1917 and the lehman trilogy are the same cut from the same cloth Hmm. they are both unbroken threads that would not have existed oh, yes. in the same way without each other. Oh, how extraordinary. They are both experiences. Lehman is a sort of single take. It is. They're, they're both, and it moves. So it, it's never, it's, a, it's an unbroken take. There is no blackout in, there is no cut in either experience. Right. And it's an example of how uh, form and content are inextricably linked. 
you cannot separate them in either experience. Yeah. And one was because of the other. And the, the two are linked by a desire for this, I suppose, the poetic, um, which is this, the sense in which you know, form and content are linked to the point where you cannot say what's expressing anything from moment to moment, whether it's the visual or the verbal, whether it's to do with light, rhythm, music, shape, space, geography, the distance between people, the distance between you and them. All of those things vary in both those experiences. And they are, that's, to me, that feels like a life's work. That feels like I've arrived there. I'm not saying it's the end result, and I'm not saying either were perfect, but they were what I meant. Very, very rare you can say that. I, I maybe only two or three times in my life I thought, well, that's that's what I meant when I when I was trying to make it, and it shows you how that one can feed off the other, you know. That's so good, so interesting. I must let you go. Two last quick question. Quick questions. <laughs> Is there anything you still want from theatre that it hasn't already given you? I thought we were onto something with Lehman. I thought we were onto something a, a different kind. I mean, Adrian Lester on the opening night of Broadway gave me a. Sippy cup gave me a, a thermos, and on the side it said, it's Mendesian, he said. And I love that cup. It sits in my car. <laughs> um, but joking aside, I felt we found something there that was not Brechtian, that was not narrative theatre, that was not complicite, that was not Shakespearean, that was not language-based. We found a dance between text, music, light, space that was something that I felt I hadn't necessarily seen before. And I think that that's what I'd like to continue to explore. But, you know, it's it's hard and you can't force a piece. You know, it, it was a response to the style in which it was written. It was a big 200-page epic poem with no listed speakers in it. So, you know, it's just where we took it. So there was that. And I think that's something I feel like, yeah, there's there's more work there to explore, more ideas. And I think uh, I'd like to try and find a way of perfecting that strange marriage between all those things. Uh, so finally, 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 you gave the most extraordinary speech at Natasha, the late, great Natasha Richardson's memorial service, <laughs> in which you said, she had said to you, don't ever lose your paunch. <laughs> it's your secret uh, weapon. Yeah. <laughs> I've been working hard on it ever since. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think your secret weapon is? <laughs> Oh, God. Apart from the paunch. It's less secret these days, I have to say. It's more of a, more of a public weapon. A weapon of mass destruction, possibly. <laughs> There's no secret to it. Yeah. I, those days, it was tucked away in my paunch. It was a little bit more difficult to spot. But anyway, um, well, I suppose now it comes in the room before me. And, and as I turn the corner to go up the stairs, it follows rather unwillingly. There's a secret weapon. <laughs> Trots along behind. Um, oh, I think that for me, the most important thing is keep learning. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculously pat. I, I suppose what I've discovered is there's a little person who lives on my shoulder. This, by the way, is borrowed by Mike, the great director, Mike Nichols, who became a friend before he died and, and was very generous to me for I know, 20 years. He used to say, in talking about the difference between LA and New York, he loved New York. And whenever he went to LA, the moment his plane landed, the little man would come onto his shoulder and say, how are you doing, Mike? How's your career? <laughs> How's Steven Spielberg's career? Better than yours, is it? Is it? Is it? Like this. And he wouldn't stop talking into his ear for the entire trip to LA. And when he took off, he'd just disappear again. He called him L.A. Man. <laughs> what L.A. Man came to tell me was my career wasn't doing so well, right? And I found this, I have a, a man, but he, he comes in moments of contemplation to tell me how I fucked up. And I very much depend on him on, on, on movies because I, you have no time to respond. If you made a mistake, you have 24 hours or you know a couple of days and then you have to, if you're going to reshoot, you've got to do it. And if you're not, or if you've made it, you're halfway through a scene and you've got to change, you've got to respond to it. And this, I owe a lot to this little man because he, he, um, he tells me regularly now, but I have to find a way to give him space, which is why I have to stop working between things. Huh. 
because that's when he comes and says, you didn't do that right. That that wasn't right. This this isn't working. Wow. Or what does that may actually mean? Why are you doing that? All the questions that you actually have to answer that I never really stopped to answer. You know, I used to have a week off between plays and just do four four plays a year, you know, and run a theatre at the same time. And that, I can't do that anymore because, I mean, I could do it, but I don't think I would enjoy any of it in the way that I did then. Because if it's not something special for me, not for the world, I mean, the world make up its own mind, I'd rather be with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> there ended the lesson. I, I think your secret <laughs> weapon is that little boy who suddenly has a spotlight on them and they're addressed uh, and and the actress says to you see you later big boy and i think it's also somewhere in that that thing that you saw in peter stein's cherry orchard that business of seeing a whole world of of inference and emotional life through a crack in the door i think i think your incredible gift has been to find light out of darkness in any particular story you bring meaning so in such an extraordinarily focused way that we don't just get a bit of it, we get all of it. You have, and it's been one of the great pleasures of my life, one of the great privileges of my life, you have directed plays more times than I care to remember where I felt like I'll never see a better production of this play. And it's been an enormous privilege to be around and witnessing it, and being able to talk to you about it after. And then for us 34, nearly 35 <laughs> years on, to have this discussion. Can we finally finish with that anecdote about you coming to my rooms? Who should tell it? I think it's got to be you, mate. Okay. People talk about the mythos of Sam Mendes's career tra trajectory. I want to say that it was born in this particular moment. <laughs> I was very much hoping that I would play Cyrano de Bergerac for the Marlowe Society in Cambridge in, in 1988. But he gave the part to Tom Hollander, who was in the year above me, and who was magnificent in the part. He came to my room in Corpus Christi College. I sat on my unmade bed, and he said, listen, I have to tell you that I'm giving the part to Tom. And my soul fell into my <laughs> boots. And he said, but I just got one thing to say to you. He said, you know, when Ralph Richardson played Cyrano, the old Vic, in 1953, Sam said, he said, do you know who played Alec Guinness? I said, no. Oh, have I fucked this up? <laughs> I'm so blind. I'm not <laughs> so blinded with the need to pee. Okay, I'm going to go back. You can go in and I'll tell a story. <laughs> you can go, you, you, you can go no, and pee and I'll tell He it. said, oh, fuck's sake. No, he I'm going to take over here. Okay. I'm going to take over there. So there, there's Johnny lying, lying in his artfully arranged uh, tiny little room at Corpus Christi College, Cambridge. And I said, you know, when, Ray when Ralph Richardson played Cyrano in 1953, who played de Guiche? And I left a long and dramatic pause. He tells me, Alec Guinness. Hmm. And he stole the show. Stole the fucking show, is how you put and it. And that is exactly what you're going to do. That's right. And uh, he left the Sam left the room, and I was dancing around, shouting, "I got De Guiche! Yes!" <laughs> de Guiche has, I want to say, four scenes <laughs> in a play that contains, you know, the part that is perhaps one of the greatest ever written for an actor in the international theatre, Cyrano. So this, I want to say, was the early creation. I was the guinea pig for what would eventually the world would know as the legend of Sam. Cogito ergo Sam. <laughs> Thank you so much, you sweet man. Total pleasure. All right, there he is. There's Sam. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was to store these conversations somewhere, was not to have them drift off into the night like the plays do. And I don't know whether I'll ever have a conversation that I am so grateful to have stored somewhere than this one. Even though we could have talked for weeks and not, you know, got close to all our shared memories and all the things that we find interesting about this form, this theatre, life. I'm so happy to have this now. So happy to have these shared recollections of of 
funny things from our past and all the insights that I'd never heard and all the understanding that I now have of how Sam really thinks about theatre and how that thinking has changed over the years and how he's changed as a person. I think the conversation really charted how he's changed, evolved, grown, got older. And me, I suppose, alongside it. I'm so proud of him, of course, of his extraordinary achievements and so lucky to have seen so many of them. Please join me next week when my guest will be the amazing British stage, film and TV actor, Damien Lewis. Stage Door Johnny is an Offscript production. Thank you so much to Louise Berry at Offscript for all your help. Thank you to Acast for your production support. Thank you to the musicians. Thank you to Iggy Cake for writing a banger of a theme tune and playing it, and Phoebe Cake for singing it so beautifully. And thank you, Sam Mendes, for your time, your patience, your friendship, and your talent. We both revered Harold Pinter. Sam had a professional relationship with him, but we also both played cricket for his team for many years, the Gaieties. And um, I thought I'd end by reading a piece of Harold's, something he wrote about memory and the past, uh, which seems appropriate. And I think I'm going to do it as Harold, just because that also seems uh, important. The past is what you remember. Imagine you remember. Convince yourself you remember. Or pretend you remember. There are some things one remembers, even though they may never have happened. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here it is, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Sees plays sad and Stage, 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 stage,